welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. My journey in hairdressing has been incredibly rewarding at lots of different levels, but one thing I never take for granted is the people that I've come to know and the friendships that I've made in this industry along the way. We're living through challenging times, and I think that it's at times like this that the importance of people, of community, of friendships, of bonding and engaging with each other is more important than ever. My guest today is Duffy one of the world's leading editorial hairstylists. He's also a good friend of mine that I've had the pleasure of knowing for the last 20 years and witnessing his work ethic, his professional growth and achievements has been amazing to watch. But all that aside, the thing that really stands out for me is that he's one of the nicest, most grounded and genuine people that you'll ever meet. And for me, that trumps absolutely everything. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss Duffy's journey into the world of editorial hairdressing, the advice that he'd give to young hairdressers who want to walk in his shoes. What is it that drives his creativity, social media and the impact it's had on fashion? And what influence might coronavirus have on fashion? And lots more. So without further ado, I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk with my good friend Duffy on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Welcome to the show, Duffy. Hello, mate. How are you? Nice to finally get to sit down and talk to you about our history together. Well, it's great to have this opportunity to. I've been trying to tie you down for a little while. And uh, for our our listeners' sake, I'm in uh, the UK and Duffy is in Beritz. For anyone who doesn't know where that is, is, um, it's in Spain, isn't it, Duffy? No, almost southwest of France. Southwest of France. So we're 15 minutes from the Spanish border. Right. Um, Okay. It's 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 the it's the holiday destination of, uh, or I suppose my holiday escape from uh, the American New York New York based. quarantine situation i suppose good okay well we'll find out more about you know uh, where you're living and where you work etc in a minute uh but i tell you what i, I always like to start off by getting my guests to uh, introduce themselves and to give the audience uh, um a sort of a you know somewhere between three and five minute backstory on who is duffy and then we can uh, dig into it and i'll ask you some uh, more sort of you know uh, pertinent questions about a whole range of uh, interesting areas so over to you duffy the floor is yours uh, i'm duffy i'm a hairdresser um it's something i've done for probably two-thirds of my life started when i was in school at 12, 13, 14, 15, left school at 15, spent uh, my apprenticeship at Vidal Sassoon in London, which was at the time the kind of cream of the crop, Um, you know, really, really focusing on the kind of cutting and and colouring side of the world that we are all obsessed with. Um, And then at 19, kind of gave up the dream and went travelling and bought a van, drove around Europe, uh, spent two years kind of, I suppose, having fun, figuring myself out working out what the future kind of held. And when I came back, I kind of threw myself into the salon world and really kind of focused on building that craft and developing it. And through the, through the kind of the, the areas in London that I was working, I met a few people, people like Eugene, people like Tyler, sorry, Eugene Suleiman and Tyler Johnston and Mira Hyde and a few of the old kind of very old school, original session stylists from the fashion world. And they introduced me to a whole nother, I suppose, genre of hairdressing. Um, and I was really fortunate enough to be, you know, able to go along and assist on a few shows and assist on a few shoots and, and, and actually get a real sort of perspective of what else was available um, to the craft that I'd kind of fallen in love with. And uh, and that, I guess, supposedly sort of brings me to where I am now. It's been a journey. I've kind of lived in three or four different countries. And uh, I now, that's all I do every day is session work, you know, editorial fashion shows, um, advertising for big brands, um, occasionally working with a few independent clients that you kind of meet through the industry. 
Um, even to the point of where last week, you know, I was in Italy working on a short film with uh, Luca, an amazing director that did Call Me By Your Name for a big fashion house in Milan. So that's where I am now, I guess, sort of uh, 24 years later, 23 years later, maybe more. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that, that wasn't even five minutes. So that, that's good. That was a good condensed overview. So, so you, did, <laughs> you, you did work in a salon for a while behind the chair building up a column. For sure, for sure. Which right. I think, to be honest, I think even when I, like I said, was lucky enough to meet those those kind of legends of the session industry, um, it was almost imperative to me, and I think they believed also, for me to remain in the salon a percentage of the week to kind of continually develop that side of what we do. Because I think the fundamental uh, craft of cutting and colouring and perming and setting is the basis for pretty much everything that I now do in sort of session and editorial world. I think, you know, the, 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 the placement of a roller, the, the tension on a section, the, the over direction of a, you know, of a blow dry, all of that has kind of followed me through and sort of helped me develop the, the, I suppose the, the, the identity I have now in hair, but, ha- and also I think the idea of having a, um, a column and you know having a clientele and developing relationships and having a captive audience and sharing information and sharing knowledge and working in sort of the cities that I was lucky enough to work in you meet extremely interesting extremely inspiring extremely creative people every day and the conversations that you're lucky enough to have for those kind of 45 minute hour long sessions with each client are, are priceless to me you know it's, uh, okay. I think the salon is the, is the root of everything for yeah, as far yeah, as no, everything is concerned. I, I, I agree. And, uh, I mean, I used to say to, I, I still, I still say it actually, and understandably they laugh at me, but you know, I say to very young hairdressers, I say, I tell how, I can tell how well you'll cut here by how well you sweep the floor. And of course they laugh at me. I deserve no, to be I laughed at for that. But it, well, yeah, it's, it's the message behind it, isn't it? It's that how you do anything is how you do everything. And so, you know, having that background in the salon, learning about hair, learning those fundamentals and really ramming those things home, um, it always stands you in good stead for everything you do. But, you know, so some people, i.e. yourself, were drawn to – the editorial world. Other people, they're just not drawn to it. I, I wasn't drawn to it. Um, it wasn't something that I ever rarely felt that I wanted to do. Um, but I know that it's, it's perceived as this very ex- you know, exciting, sexy part of the industry that a lot of young people, a lot of young hairdressers perceive as uh, the direction that they do want to move into. What, what, was the, what was the appeal to you? You know what it was? Um I think at such a young age, walking, making that fundamental decision at such a young age, I want to be a hairdresser. You know, I remember friends of mine at school going to me, well, can you cut hair? And they didn't quite understand the fact that wanting to be a hairdresser didn't mean that I could do it or I felt I could do it. It was the, it was the, it was the idea that I would give it a go and we would see. And, and, and then once we, once I did it and I, and I, you know, sort of embraced it and studied it and, and, and sort of, sort of threw myself into that uh, process, you suddenly realize that, you know, there is so many facets to what we do. There's so many ways that you can use your knowledge. There's so many ways that you can, um, there's so many ways that you can, develop that craft you know we look at you know so soon talking about Bauhaus and the kind of the, the, the influence of architecture and the influence of form and shape and I think for me the, the 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 constant evolution of creativity is what drives me and what got me into editorial was not necessarily the fact that I was obsessed with fashion or I loved Vogue or I wanted to work for designers it was it was two words that I think, you know, even last week I was talking to my wife about risk and change. I think change is healthy and I think risk is good. I think taking a risk is very, very good for people within creative endeavors. And I think change is constantly good for people to evolve and grow 
And I think within your create, whether you're a painter, whether you're a sculptor, whether you're a visual artist or a performance artist or a dancer, or I think change and risk are very, very good catalysts to help you progress. Um, and I think that's what got me into editorial was the idea that, you know, kind of not I'd done the salon and I needed more, but, you know, salon would always stay with me. But the idea that there was more to what we did and I could discover more and I could expand as a hairdresser and maybe learn more and, and discover the, the more possibilities within hair, you know, the silhouette. I guess the silhouette is something for me that is always imperative with hair, no matter whether we're talking, you know, a blow dry, a curling iron, a cut, uh, you know, whatever. It's the silhouette that we have the ability to change and mold and, and form and the ever-changing silhouette within hairdressing, even within imagery, is what excites me, I think. So editorial kind of naturally pulled me towards it because you're capturing that silhouette in different types of shape and form and 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 uh, texture. Yeah. Talk, talk about... Um as as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, we both come from the same Sassoon background, which, you know, we both, um, you know, hold in very high regard. But um, the editorial world is yeah. um, Sassoon doesn't necessarily prepare you for the editorial world because oh God, no. as a Sassoon oh God, editor, no. all I ever wanted to do was cut the bloody stuff. And, and when. So, honestly, I'm so glad you said this. I mean, I yeah, left because, Sassoon's at yeah. 19 yeah. and I had never used it. And all due respect, I mean, the Sassoon way was the Sassoon way and I will never ever say a word against it. For me, it was the perfect start to craft for me. I learned my foundation there and I learned so much, but I left Sassoon's at 19, having never held a round brush, having never used a curling iron and having never changed the natural form. Hmm of a client's hair. So if you came in with curly hair, we would leave it dry naturally or we would diffuse dry it. Yeah. You know, if you came in with straight hair, we would wrap dry it. We would never change the form of a, of a client's hair. So I was never putting, you know, a lazy wave in it with a, with a, you know, three quarter inch barrel curling iron. I was never kind of stretching the root out and over directing to create volume at the crown. You know, yeah, you'd lift mm. it with a vent brush and you'd get a little bit of like natural volume yeah. with a wrap dry. But yeah. I was never, I think what I'm trying to say is I was never, Never building hair at Sassoon. You never built hair into a shape or a silhouette or changed yeah. the natural silhouette of, of hair or the natural form of hair. And I think that may be because, you know, I was there between, I think, 92 and 97 or something, or 93 and 97. No, no, uh, that, that, that is the whole ethos behind, you know, the Sassoon, you know, uh, style of yeah. work, which, which we yeah. both hold in very high regard, as you say. Yeah, sure. but, but what I was going to say to you was that doesn't set you up. No. for being able to move and mold hair the way that you no. need to as an editorial hairdresser. So no. talk a little bit about that transition. Like what was your first foray into editorial like? I mean, you know, how did I mean, that? The, fir the, first, the first thing I ever did, um, I was working at Sassoon's in Covent Garden and down the road there was a salon called um, Windle. And yeah. Windle were the first people to bring Bumble and Bumble into England from America. And yeah. and I, I used to hang out at a clothes store called Duffer St. George next door. And this guy used to come in and he was like the cool guy that was kind of traveling between New York and London. And uh, he used to work occasionally in Windle and his name was Eugene. And I met him through friends there. You know, I was like the kind of the, the shop kid. I'd go around on my lunch break, go and buy everyone's lunch for him. And they'd give me a t-shirt for, my, for mm. my troubles. And I met this guy, Eugene, and, and uh, after a couple of times of him coming into the, into the store, I mean, meeting him and essentially idolizing him in a way because he was, he was flying around the world and he was, you know, he wore really, he, he dressed really cool and had really nice sneakers on and, and people and friends of started telling me about his work and what he did. And then, um, and he said to me one day, he said, yeah, why don't you just come along, come along to one of the shows? And I think it was the very first, my very first ever sort of foray into what fashion, what hair was within fashion. And we went, it was in Spitalfield Market before Spitalfield Market became like a kind of fashion hub, like a kind of clothing stall market. It was a proper old market, like an animal market, I think. And there was a show there, I think it was Hussein Shalayan, which was one of, sort of Eugene's, 
biggest collaborators all the way sort of through the 90s and early 2000s. And he was one of the most progressive designers. He did dresses made out of paper and, you know, parachute dresses that exploded and, you know, dresses that inflated. I mean, he was incredible, Hussein. Anyway, I turned up. I got there. I got paired off with this guy called Johnny Drill, who was like this other completely abstract kind of sort of barber. Uh, I mean, he was, Johnny was a, a bit of a name at the time. He was working for Dazed and ID. He was another freelancer, like session stylist. And I got paired off with him. And uh, Eugene had created these kind of, he'd had, I think Josh Woods at the time had, had dyed these, you know, 100% human hair, lace front, you know, full lace wigs. You know, they were, I don't know, mm. thousands of dollars, these wigs. And Eugene was cutting them into crucifixes and laying them on top of these sort of wig wraps underneath. I've never seen anything like it in my life, and I was completely out of my depth. I had no idea what I was doing. And I got a pair of scissors, you know, thinking I knew what I was doing, and I chopped one of the wigs in half. I kind of overcut the section, and one of the four arms of the crucifix dropped on the floor. And I basically, <laughs> I kid you not, Anthony, I hid under the fucking table, sorry. Yeah. I hid under the table yeah. at this fashion show till the end of the show, because I was so worried that I'd ruined the show that my one mistake would ruin you know the 30 models or the 40 models and you know I mean Eugene came over and you know stitched the wig back together and it, it was for him he was already in the zone of like you solve problems and yeah. me creating one was just one of a thousand problems that happen every day backstage at a show and so but to me personally as my first it was like the biggest problem it was the biggest thing on earth and I'll never yeah, forget yeah. it because I was too gun ho I was too overeager. I was too cocksure. I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I knew, you know, I'd seen the demo. I knew I wanted to have a go. And sometimes it's not about that. It's about taking a step back. And like in the salon, when you're an assistant, you observe, you watch people cut hair. You see how they hold a section. You see how they use the brush. You see which way they point the nozzle. You see which, you know, and me running into that show, my first ever experience, imagine it, you know, I'd phoned in sick at Vidal Sassoon. So I had all this to prove and I had to like make it worthwhile. And in reality, what I probably should have done was stood on the sidelines and just watched and learned yeah. and taken on board all of the information. And mm. and I think sometimes, I mean, it's a very valuable lesson for me that sometimes you need to stop, mm. and take a breath and actually think it through and like, yeah, yeah. Watch, well, watch that's the a, process. That, 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 that leads perfectly into what I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, if you're a young hairdresser listening to this, thinking yeah. that I want to get into that world, how what would you say are the things that they need to do? To be honest, I think it's changed a lot. You know, when, when I first met Eugene and Mira, I mean, Mira Hyde was an amazing hairdresser. She, you know, Lee McQueen lived in her apartment in Hoxton Square in the very early days of his kind of like St. Martin's college degree. And she started working with him at a very early age. And then, of course, Eugene started working. Eugene started working on the women's shows and the men's shows. But she also took me on very early. And something that I think was very important was the acknowledgement when I was very young that I was there to learn. It wasn't, I wasn't there to show my, or to have an opinion. And I don't mean like, you know, your opinion doesn't count. But what I mean is, is that being a part of a team is not always about you doing the thing. Like I've got, you know, we have, I have 12 people that travel with me internationally. I have, you know, 30 to 45 people that work with me on each show. And some of the best hairdressers I know on my team will take a step back and hold a piece of elastic or take a step back and grab a bottle of spray or a bottle of glue or sweep up or clean a workstation before the models come back from rehearsal because they know that they are a part of the process. It's mm. not, you know, people always say, you know, they always say, it, and I will always say, it, I'm only as good as my team. Mm. Because if my team don't function and we don't work as a as a unit, you're flawed completely. Because if everyone's just there for their own gain and for their own appreciation and for their own knowledge and their own greed, in a way, you know, they they want to take everything they can and not give anything back. Especially in this sort of, and I'm probably going to sound like an old man here, but especially in this day and age of kind of the social media you know, you've got a captive audience that's interested in just you. You know, I have people that come on my show that, you know, have been in the industry for 30 years and they'll stand by me, hold a pin, sweep up, 
grab me a hairdryer. And that, you know, they're, they're 10, 20 years older than me, but they mm. are aware of the fact that they are there, to, that they want to be a part of something and they want to be involved in something rather than you have other kids that come on the shows that kind of, you know, they're the ones that want to, they want to do the look. They want to go away knowing that they've done the look of the show, but they do it and they do it badly. And then someone else on my team has to fix it. And it kind of, everybody loses because the person that's come on board that's never done it before goes away with the wrong knowledge and the wrong aesthetic and the wrong idea. And the person that has had to fix it has had to work twice as hard because someone's been selfish and thought, I'm only here for me as opposed to yeah, coming yeah. on board, you know? Yeah, I don't know that, if I kind that, of totally went no, off No, no, you, 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 you have, and, and I, I was going to ask you something about that, and you've sort of already answered it, but maybe there's yeah. more to the answer. What yeah. I was going to say to you was that, you know, as you just alluded to, you do you do fashion shows now in London, Paris, New York, you know, Milan, whatever. Yeah. Uh, you have a big team of people. You do some of the biggest designers in the world, um, and – you know, th that is very seductive for young hairdressers to want to work on. So what I was yeah. going to say to you was that you must have had lots of young hairdressers on your team that at some stage they don't work out. And what I was going to say was, so what yeah, are some of the sure. things that they do wrong? Okay, let me go back very quickly to the first question, then I'll come back here. So I think what's important is for hairdressers, young hairdressers, to understand and develop their own taste. Because you can come and work with me and you can copy what I do or you can take the looks that we do or Guido does or Eugene does or Paul does or James does or Anthony does and you can go back home and you can do it verbatim and do it exactly the same and pass it off as yours. But for me, it's about the evolution of a, of a, of a, of a technique. It's the evolution of a shape. It's the evolution of a style that makes our industry grow and develop and constantly change. So I think what, what, what's important for young hairdressers is, yes, you can say to me as a young hairdresser that I admire Anthony Turner or I admire Paul Hanlon or I admire Guido or Malcolm or Julian Dees or Christian. And admiration is the best thing because I grew up worshipping those guys. Eugene, you know, like hands down, Eugene, amazing. But you have to have your own little, and the word is flavor to me, you have to have your own flavor. You have to have your own take on it, your own spin on it. You look at someone like Angela Seminara who takes you know, constantly, constantly pushes those boundaries of the most simple techniques. He will take it and reinvent it. He will mm. take it and evolve it. So for me, yeah, I, I know I've digressed and gone the wrong way, but for young hairdressers, it's about looking at what you aesthetically like and seeing how you can make it your own rather than mm. sort of, I suppose, you know, I, I hate the word copy, but rather than sort of plagiarizing it or kind of like, you know, repeat it. I think repeating is a good word. No one should ever really aspire to repeat something that someone has already done i think every artist you look at every dancer you look at every person that works within the arts pushes themselves to kind of evolve and i think evolution for everyone is the most important thing so as, as a young hairdresser starting out have your have the people you admire have the hairstyles that you love but always question it look at it and see if there's a better way of doing it or an easier way of doing it or a you know, a tougher way or a softer way or a more aggressive way or a rural way of recreating and evolving mm. a, the, the, a simple French pleat, a simple chignon, a simple ponytail. See if you can reinvent it so that it progresses and you push as, a, as, a, and as, as an industry. We continue to push the industry that we're in. Now to your other question, Anthony. Sorry, well, it's okay. <laughs> what, what mistakes? What 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 mistakes do people make? Um, I don't really know if there are any. I think to go back to what you were saying at the beginning and the Sassoon training, I think something that really is apparent. You know, my wife said we, my wife and I uh, the other day we were arranging to meet someone and someone you know, and the guy said to me, "Listen, we need we're going to meet these people that you know we can't be late." And my wife turned around and said, "You've never been late." And we've been together 15 years. And weirdly, honest to God, I've never been late for a job in my life. I've never been late to a show. I was, I never missed a day of school. I never, you know, I think it's, it's that age old thing of you treat people the way you want them to treat you. If I turn up late, I'm telling everybody that I've turned up late for that I'm more important than them. And that's not the case because what we do in this industry is we collaborate and we work as a team always. I'm never 
I'm never the main person. I'm, I never, I've never seen myself as the, the, the head or the, the, you know, the, 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 so I think it's about, for me, it's about the, your work ethic is what the word I was trying to find your work ethic and the way you perceive the environment you're entering into. It's like walking into the salon. You'd always turn up 15 minutes before your first or half an hour before your first client, because you don't want to be walking in the door when she sat on the bench there, taking your shirt off, throw, you know, as I did as a kid, throw your skateboard in the coat cloak room and you know wipe the sweat off your brow and throw your coffee cup in the bin you you want to be seen as you know if, if you want people to consider you at a certain level you need to portray that and kind of uh, communicate that so you know you're there half an hour before you clean yourself up you get yourself ready you tidy your workstation that's that ethic has stayed with me to this day you know yeah. i turn up always yeah. i t- the weird thing in fashion there's a weird thing in fashion where you look at a cool sheet and it'll be the cool time will be 10 o'clock and they'll want, you know, the assistants to turn up at nine o'clock and give them half an hour to turn, to set up. Then I'll turn up at 9.30 and I've got half an hour to get myself ready before the creative director and the designer and the photographer and the stylist turn up, which I have, you know, which is always the way it's been. But for me, I've always turned up with my assistants. I've always turned up the hour before. Or if they want the assistants, they're half an hour before everyone else. I'll always turn up with them because... I don't see myself any better or any worse than the guys that work with me and support me and carry me through the year. You know, I have two amazing guys, two or three amazing guys that work with me. Lucas is my main guy that's with me 24-7. And we pretty much stay in the same hotels. We travel in the same cars. We're on the same planes, da da da, da. Because we, I see us as a team. I see us as a, you know, a, a, a unit that is, that is working towards something better and something stronger. So in answer to your question, (laughs) what mistakes do people make? I think it's the assumption that you're not a part of something bigger Mm. and that you are essentially always in, in an editorial, on a show, on a film, on a, on a advertising campaign, on a runway show, you are always a part of a team because you've got the styling department that's waiting for you to finish. You've got the photographer or the director waiting for you to bring the talent to set. You've got the client waiting for you to produce what they've requested. You've got, you know, you've got an audience of 5,000 people in Paris sat at the, you know, the Louvre hotel, the, the Louvre museum waiting for people to, you know, waiting for a runway to start. You're always a part of a team that is trying to produce a product that is that is that is finished and polished and and perfected yeah i was i was going to say without putting words into your mouth that um oftentimes the mistake that they make is that they completely underestimate the difference between being a salon hairdresser and then being an editorial hairdresser and before they go into editorial they're very much grounded in the salon world and sometimes very very good salon hairdressers you know and they might win industry awards blah 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 and do you know great hair for hairdressers but they don't necessarily recognize just how different those two environments are um, and that, that, in my observation, is a big mistake that a lot of young hairdressers make, that their ego gets in the way and that they turn up on the show and think, I'm going to impress Duffy or whoever with how good I already are and that that's yeah. missing the point completely. Completely. You know? And, yeah, I mean, hopefully I've, I've said all of that. I, hopefully yeah. I've, yeah, I've you have. Hint, hinted towards that without being as, as, yeah. as kind of as blunt and, and direct yeah. as what I am. <laughs> no, but in, in a way, yeah. the, only reason, the only reason I say that is because I've been in that situation. I see it happen every season. Yeah, I see people come to the table and they want to prove themselves. And I don't, I don't knock that. I think yeah. drive and passion and, and, and you know, uh, I think it's all incredibly healthy. And I think, as I said, you know, there needs to be that in order for us to continually evolve. But I do, yeah. as you said, you know, I think there is, there is a, not, you know, listen, we are all just hairdressers. No one's better or worse than anyone. We are, Eugene's always called himself a ladies hairdresser. And I really respect mm. that because that's what he sees himself as. He's never been anything, but he's a ladies hairdresser. You know, there's so many different titles. We have so many, you know, we have so many kind of like, names that we've given ourselves to try and set ourselves apart and at the end of the day we all just do hair 
Mm. We will do it in our own way. And yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. And you're proud of that. I'm proud of that. We've yeah. both done very well out of it. Um, let me, let me. I mean, another thing that I think a lot of young hairdressers make the mistake of thinking is that they don't realize how hard you work for how little money that you get at the beginning of that journey. They don't understand that they're paying their own hotels, they're paying their own airfares, and then they're working for nothing and buying their own lunch afterwards. I mean, that is it's a tough industry to make any money out of, isn't it? Do you know what? When I when I first started out, you know, I, I literally, and th- this is where I think the salon becomes so important, is because with the salon situation, you've got the ability to uh, fend for yourself, essentially, because editorial and the session world, when you first start out, is so brutal. Because it's you are doing everything. It's, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's editorial self promotion. You know, mm. I, I I'm lucky enough to get my name into. I think the first thing I ever did was a, you know, I shaved a Nike tick into the back of some kid's hair for a sort of quarter page article in GQ magazine. And I did it while I was in the salon, and a friend of mine brought some kid in and said, "Can you do it?" And I just about managed to get the Nike tick looking like a looking like a tick without it looking like something awful. And, you know, the pride I had in it, but what, what, what my, what my sort of payback was, was that a lot along the gutter of the magazine, it said hair by Duffy and the, you know, the sort of pride it gave me and, you know, the, the idea that that would be seen by people that would then, you know, sort of give me the progress to then take that to someone else and show them that I'd been in this magazine and I've done that. Mm. It's, it's now, it's now, it's now very different with, with social media and, and that way. But the early days of editorial editorial was, was you did everything for free. You paid your own taxi or you, you, you took this when I never paid for a taxi. I used to cycle around London or I'd walk with, you know, a backpack full of stuff and a suitcase, a wheelie suitcase and slap it on the subway. And, um, and even when I thought, you know, even after sort of 10 years of doing it, when I moved to New York, um, I was, I think the first year of being in New York, I was in New York shooting editorial for like Teen Vogue and then finally American Vogue and a few other sort of, of the magazines. And, and I think my first year I didn't do, I probably did one advertising job that brought me in a bit of a rate. And every single week I would fly back to London to do an advertising job of sorts to cover the cost of me being in New York to pay, you know, the $800 a month rent I was paying on a tiny little apartment uh, room in an apartment in the back end of Williamsburg on the industrial estate and to feed myself. But every week, I think I did 52 transatlantic flights that backwards and forwards from like return. That's not one way. That was 52 return flights that year. And so that, you know, that first year of mine in America was really, really tough and it continued to be that way. But, you know, you fast forward again another 10 years to now and, you know, I'm very fortunate to work for some uh, incredible clients that really respect the relationship we have. And I have, I earn a great living, a really great living. And I'm very happy and thankful for the, the, the opportunities I've got to kind of earn the, the, earn the right to have the standard living I have from the effort that's kind of put in over the last 25 years. But the beginnings are tough. Like you said, Anthony, you know, it is all off your own back. It is all off out of your own pocket. It is all about you pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to develop that, that reputation. Um, Can I ask you about the agent side of things? How important is it to find, you know, the right agent, not just an agent, but how important is it to find the right agent? And how do you go about doing that? What's that sort of process look like? To, to, um, I'll make this is a very quick answer because I think it needs to be quick because I think there's so much around this. You don't find an agent. An agent finds you. It's okay. that simple, right? Mm-hmm. There is no me walking around London knocking on doors of a portfolio going, I want you to see this. That's never been how it's worked, how it worked. Okay. Agents find you if if you're good enough and you're putting in the work and you're getting work published or you're today you're posting on social media and you're 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 putting in the legwork and you're you're developing your craft. You people will find you, especially now. I mean, twenty years ago it was so much harder. It was always word yeah. of mouth. Now you know with social media, there's so much more with Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and all that. There's so much more you can be doing to raise your own profile. Mm. Agents find you. That simple. Okay. 
is good. Don't don't knock on doors because honestly, the minute you the more doors you knock on, the less opportunities you build for yourself. Because right. you knock you knock on doors this year, and you get no's next year. You knock on doors again. They're like, oh, Duffy's back again. Hasn't really done too much, you know. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was always a case of, and I do genuinely believe agents will find you, and the right agent will find you if they if it's meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. And then Um, the, the other thing I will say about agents is it's not about the agency as in, it's not about the title of the agency. You can think they're the greatest agent in the world, but if the person you speak to day to day does not understand who you are and what you want out of your career, it's never going to work. Yeah. So you can be at the smallest agency in London and have an incredible relationship with your booker day to day and do it and do incredibly well. You can be at the best agency in the world and not really have that relationship with your booker and, and do nothing and do badly and, you know, struggle. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a very, it's a very straightforward equation essentially. Okay. Just quickly talk about the different, you know, under this banner of sort of editorial hairdresser, there are really different areas, aren't there? There's, as you alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, you're currently working on a film. Working on a film is very different to doing editorial in a in a studio. So j- just talk about the difference between red carpet yeah. work, doing fashion yeah. shows, working in the studio, yeah. doing editorial, doing film. Um, what, what, what are the differences? What's your favorite? What's advantages, disadvantages of, of, of each right. sort of thing? So for me, my favorite straight off the bat is uh, editorial. For me, creating two-dimensional imagery, photography, being a part of that process, being a part of that team, being able to contribute to an image is what has always excited me and always driven me and and has allowed me to appreciate the incredible photographers and teams that I'm able to work with. Fashion shows for me are a completely different thing. So editorial, you take your time, you 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 have you have as much time as you want to kind of build an image and build a silhouette and create create that character, that story, that narrative. A fashion show is fast. It's incredibly, um, you know, it's it's incredible adrenaline. And as I've said before, you're only as good as your team because I can't physically do sixty models. I can't physically do a hundred models. So I I put my trust into you know, 12 people and those 12 people put their trust into two people each. And you say, that's how you build a team. Right. Mm. But the difference is, is that two dimensionally, I can fake a lot. I can, you know, I'm going to stick a sheet of cardboard on the back of someone's head with, with staples and glue and clips and create the biggest two dimensional silhouette you've ever seen in, in, Mm. in a magazine. But on a runway, we're talking three dimensional, right? Because you're talking about a moving person and that leads into film where you're talking about, uh, three-dimensional but you know fashion shows are over in four minutes three minutes two minutes so you know and as uh, interestingly angelo years ago said to me duffy you've got to remember that runway's six feet 12 feet away from you you've got you've got a little bit of room for i suppose mistakes not mistakes but you've got a little bit of room for continuity right not every single one's mm. going to be exactly the same you, you move into the film industry and you have someone on set whose only job was continuity. So yeah. Monday she walks Monday she walks in with a ponytail. Tuesday I walk in, I've done the same ponytail. I think I'm, you know, this is easy. I've done the ponytail. Continuity comes up to me two minutes into filming. They stop filming, everything shuts down. Continuity says to me, Duffy, the ponytail's actually about half an inch lower than it was yesterday. And you're like, hang on a minute, what do you mean? It's a ponytail. Mm. But in order for the character to survive through the film or through the day, Mm. You know, you could, it can take five days or 10 days to shoot one day of film as in yeah. one visual day in a, in a story. So you've got different, you're dealing with a different beast every time and you're dealing with a different time frame and a different sort of rush of adrenaline and a different kind of, uh, responsibility, you know, editorially, I can walk into editorial on my own with, with one idea and execute that on a mm. show. I've got 15 ideas and I've got to evolve that. In a film, I've got 25 characters, and those characters have to live within that movie. Mm. You know, so each day their character changes slightly, or it's identical, or it's you know. And so there's you know yeah that, and then and then you know as you said, there's red carpet. Now red carpet is a whole other thing because you're dealing with you're not dealing with a chameleon, a, a, a model that you are. Um, transforming such you know like you take a girl and you can make her six different people in an editorial with red carpet you're taking an already 
established personality that has a has a narrative and has an opinion and has a, a an incredible you know and has their their story already and you're there to i suppose what's the word you're there to embellish that a little bit and kind of add whatever little bit of pizzazz you can on the day depending on the dress they're wearing or the or the mm. function that they're going to or the the people they're performing with or appearing with or walking down the carpet with so you're looking at the costume the shoe the environment the lighting you're looking at all those different elements and deciding what silhouette works what product what finish high shine matte low you know yeah, so, yeah, yeah each, i think each each scenario presents its it presents its uh its opportunities but also its problems yeah okay let, let me let me mix it up a little bit i want to talk to you more about uh creativity and beauty and fashion and you know that whole side of things um is there a a go-to duffy look you know what the other day i think i think i've made my i think i've made my career out of imperfection <laughs> okay yeah i think there's beauty in imperfection i think there's perfection yeah. in imperfection i think when i if i and i wouldn't i would never ever and I, I say this is a personal personal thing i would never ever consider myself an artist as i said i'm a hairdresser and i love to play with hair right i love what the the, the malleability of it the the evolution of it but when i look at artists contemporary artists modern artists that i really respect a lot of them are the kind of abstract expressionists kind of quite loose kind of throwaway what would be considered throwaway effortless paintings or sculptures or gestures so to speak and i think what that gives me in my own mind is the idea that is the idea that you can that you can be the most perfect at what you do but in order to you have to be the most perfect in order to break it and evolve it so in order to get to a point where you can make two brush strokes on a canvas that are so loose and so effortless and so throwaway, you have to have got to a point where you have been so completely perfect that you can then break that down. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's one of my favorite words. It's a Japanese word called, um, I think it's wabi-sabi. And, and that's exactly what wabi-sabi means. It's, it's perfectly imperfect. And I think yeah, there's there no, go. no direct English translation for it, but it's, yeah. it's a, it's about beauty and imperfection. And I think that that exactly. is a, that's a great, um, you know, way to talk about that. You know, I was talking to uh, Guido, you mentioned him earlier on, and I asked him a question along those lines. I think it wasn't yeah. the same question. Uh, it was something about, I said to him, you know, with, with your huge body of work in the last sort of 40 years, is there a common theme that runs through it all? You know, because, you know, over 40 years, you collect quite a body of work. And there was one thing he said, which has, has sat with me since, and I've spoken about it with a few people. And he said, I would like to think that no matter what I do, that there's a little bit of punk that runs through it, you know? So amazing. whether it's amazing. the most glamorous, you know, cover on, yeah, you know, Vogue or whether it's a amazing. show he's done, that that's that, the sort of edge that he has in it. And I, I've amazing. reflected on that quite a bit since. And I, I thought it was a great, a great, um, I mean, you know, mate, he's, he's, you know, there's nothing that man hasn't done. There's nothing that man cannot do. I mean, he's, yeah. and I think, yeah. And, and to that point, you know, punk is the perfect descriptive because, you know, uh, you know the anarchy the original you know the original kind of, sort of breaking against the system breaking the kind of uh, going against the zeitgeist or going against popular culture or going against you know what was of the moment is what made yeah. everything is what is where punk came from originally and i think guido has always been ahead of the game he's always presented you so again talking about art i'll go back to art very quickly i walked into my my wife who i met 15 years ago's gallery and this is kind of how we met and there was a piece on the wall and it had literally just one brush stroke on it and mm. um and i was and i looked at the price tag i thought it was an absolute joke and i couldn't really get my head around it but what it was amazing about it was is it was it was the complete opposite of what everyone was doing at the time everyone was doing kind of figurative very precise, very perfect painting. You know, you, it was it was descriptive painting, and this was the complete opposite. And for me, 
it sat with me and it, it, it evoked uh, an emotion, right? And I was like, first of all, I hated it. I thought it was so ugly and so pointless. And I was like, I could do that. Yeah. But yeah. after I sat, every time I went back to visit her, because obviously I was, you know, <laughs> chasing her. So every time, you know, once a week I'd go back in the gallery, pretend to look at this painting. And it started to grow on me. And after sort of a month, I suddenly fell in love with this painting because it grew on me. And I think with, with what Guido does is he presents things that aren't within your sort of popular view uh, and can almost feel a little awkward or a little upsetting when you first view it sometimes. Yeah. But that's what's exactly so what smart mean. about it yeah, because exactly. he evolves. He, yeah. Like I was saying earlier, he takes something and evolves it or changes it yeah. to a different perspective where you actually have to question it. And once you start to question it, you see how smart, how clever and how intelligent yeah. his decisions yeah. have been. Because he's yeah. a genius. I mean, the man's a genius. There's a ge- yeah. no one, no one can doubt that that he's an absolute genius. Yeah. But what what um, references do you draw on? Like, like what is your sort of creative process when you're, you know, designing hair for a show or a particular shoot or something like that? Yeah. What, what what are the references that you fall back on? I mean, we, you know, look, I, I, in the same way Guido and Eugene and, and, and Anthony and Paul and those guys, we all come from London and uh, we all come from London. And I think counterculture is a great thing. You know, we all look at counterculture. We look at punk, you look at Marge, you look at Ted, you look at this. For me, it's always about the person sat in the chair. It's, yeah. you know, I have those references in my head. I know how to do this and I have to do that. I can do a quiff. I can do a whatever I can do. it. But for me, it's the person that's in the chair. I can yeah. talk about art, I can talk about this, I can talk about that. But in reality, it's the person in the chair and the conversation with the team. It's about the outfit they're wearing, the narrative of the story, the narrative of the image or the narrative of the show. And that's yeah. where it starts. Yeah. Have, have you got a favorite look or, or a favorite period of time? I've got a favorite period of time. I mean, I was, you know, I sort of grew up in the grunge period, I suppose. So kind of yeah. this sort of... You know, I have a very dear friend, Frank B, who's a makeup artist who's, you know, sort of generations above me, worked with absolutely everybody, Evan Penn. And he said to me, he said, oh, you do wet dog very well. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you do sort of a wet dog. You do wet, you've made a career out of doing wet dog. And I take that as a compliment because that kind of broken, undone, raw, slightly greasy, slightly dirty, very flat at the root, you know, the opposite of what, I sort of maybe saw growing up with like my grandma having a big set and a big roller set and a blow dry and a 60s number. Grunge was kind of the complete opposite of that. Mm. And that's, that's kind of, I suppose, my go-to. I love texture. I think texture is so important. Individual texture, manufactured texture, evolved texture, big texture, small texture. Anything with texture in, I love. I don't really love perfect anything. It's always about a texture for me. Yeah, Okay. Um, another question that I've got written down, I mean, a lot of the things I'm asking, you they're not written down. I'm just bouncing off what you're saying because yeah. it's a, a great conversation. But talk about the difference or not necessarily the difference, but talk about technique versus style. Right. I mean, technique is, you know, technique's imperative. Like I said, I've got, I've got guys that work for me. Lucas, my, my, my guy that works for me all the time, grew up in a salon environment. Both his parents are hairdressers. There was no one technically better that I know when you talk yeah. about, you know, actual technique. And after technique, it's about taste. Anthony Turner said something really amazing in, in ID magazine a few years ago. And I think it was along those lines that after technique, it's only about taste because technique is, you know, technique is technique. And we, we can all train ourselves to be incredible at technique. But yeah. taste is where you then take it. So I think it's about that. It's about once you get to a point where you understand every every technique that hairdressing has to offer, it's about how you make, how you personalize it. And then it's about your individual taste and whether the team you're working with or the client you're working for appreciates that or grows tired of it or wants a change. You know, why do people move from me to other hairdressers after a few seasons or 10 years or it's because they, they, they are looking for something different. They want to evolve. It's not, it's not because I'm bad at what I do or the technique is not there. Mm. It's about taste. And I think taste is really important in fashion because fashion is built on taste, isn't it? Yeah, Trends totally. are built on taste. And it's individual taste. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I know you're in you know, uh, France at the moment. Um, you live in New York. You're from London. 
you know, and you do shows in, in you know, Paris, Milan as well. Um, yeah. What what do you get from different places? Like, okay, I mean, I know you're based in in, in New York. Is that the yeah. the financial capital of fashion, so to speak? Like, like what no, does New York really. give you? What does London give you? What does Paris give you? What does Milan give you? I mean, you know, there's there's very kind of cliche conversations with regards to that. But I grew up in London. I cut my teeth in London. I'm from London. I believe London's so important. I supported London Fashion Week for years and years because I believe it's it's what what grew me to the point of where I was able to see the industry in a bigger light. And 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 my journey to New York was purely personal. I didn't. I left. I left London for personal reasons. I didn't go to New York because someone told me you'd make lots of money there or because that's where Vogue was or that. I left London and you know the backstory, Anthony, but I left yeah, London yeah. for personal reasons. Yeah. And, uh, you know, slept it. I was going to sleep on a mate's couch and, uh, and he told me I couldn't sleep. I ended up in the YMCA on a bunk bed up on Central Park for, yeah. you know, a month. But New York, yes, New York is a more commercial side of fashion. Uh, and with that comes, you know, money and America's a bigger country and there's a bigger audience and, you know, there's more opportunity for business. You know, Paris is supposedly the, the, the home of the couture house. So it's about, you know, more refined, you know, I suppose the finer side of the, you know, the finer side and the craftsmanship. You know, London's always had that kind of punk element to its fashion and Milan has a very kind of, uh, very staid, very, um, family orientated you know a lot of the houses in Italy mm. are family family houses you know Ferragamo, yeah, Versace yeah. you know that generational fashion it's generational mm. fashion Paris is generational fashion but it evolves every few years or every few seasons they bring in new blood you know like when when uh, people took you know you look at you look at Alexander McQueen going to Givenchy you know, and then you look at the evolutions. Claire Wright Kellis just left Givenchy, and and we have a new guy walking in this season to Givenchy. The evolution of the Paris fashion house is kind of what keeps it keeps it relevant, I think. Um, so I think each 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 country gives you something different, completely different, uh, and that again in turn allows you to evolve. Yeah. What what um, impact? I mean, here we are in. Uh, uh, almost September uh, 2020, um, you know, coronavirus is still here and not about to go away. Um, I, I find it really interesting how fashion evolves over, you know, the last yeah. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And there's lots of things that make fashion evolve. And it, it's inevitable that what we're living through at the moment affects every part of our lives, including fashion. So what I wanted to ask you was, how do you think that coronavirus will impact on the fashion aesthetic? And and also, I suppose it's inevitable, you know, fashion shows, et cetera, and how we shop, et cetera. All that's going to have an impact for financial reasons and social distancing reasons. But I, I, th I think I'm more interested in, in your opinion on how do you think coronavirus will impact on the beauty aesthetic i mean to be honest i think what has it done it's it's made everybody think a little a little outside of the box i think it's made everybody imagine uh, a world with a lot of other things you know the overconsumption la 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 um but I think with regards to beauty, I think, uh, I mean, let's look, at, let's look at the rawness of it. Let's look at six months at home without a hairdresser. Let's look at six months at home without a trip to the salon or six months at home with what I, what I like to call self-care. You know, mm. I think self-care is so incredibly important for everybody, but especially people that have, you know, specific hair types or, you know, live in, live in areas where the water's hard or the, you know, the weather, the weather conditions really affect the way our hair, our hair survives or grows. And I think with regards to fashion and the identity within fashion, I don't know if it's necessarily changed kind of the, 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 the visual perspective of fashion really. Yeah, I don't think it's happened yet. I, I, I don't I think, think it's happened, I think, and I don't. I think the the I think what it has affected is it's affected the editorial process. I think mm. it's affected the design process. So it, it's it's fractured the seasonal the seasonal run. You know, like fifteen years ago there was autumn, winter, spring, summer. Now there's autumn, winter, spring, summer, three, fall, uh, cruise, 
there's you know shows off schedule there's couture mm. there's menswear there's women's wear i think what will happen is we'll come back after this and we'll have co-ed we'll have you know men and women in the same show rather than a men's fashion week and a women's fashion week um mm-hmm. i think a lot of people will stop producing crews and pre-fall or let's hypothetically say they'll stop producing autumn winter spring summer and they'll stick with cruise and pre-fall uh, i mean couture will always be couture because couture has to exist you know mm-hmm. so i think we'll go from maybe five five seasons to three possibly and we'll end up combining men and women together which i think is quite interesting um especially given sort of the evolution of the world now i think it's a more unified a more unified fashion show uh is kind of what the world needs so I don't think I don't think it changes the 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 visual aesthetic, but I think it changes the process. And editorial, you know, friends of mine, the big uh, editors of magazines, have had to really think about how they produce imagery and content for magazines because you've not got twenty people in a studio mm. study, studying a model in front of a, a camera on a tripod with you know three hairdressers, you know, three three people working on hair, three people working on clothes. You know, people have had to do stuff through Skype and through Zoom and people have had to do stuff with, you know, uh, on themselves. Uh, you know, they've had to do all kinds of, um, they've had to do all kinds of, uh, I suppose, interesting thinking and processes of working out how to produce imagery because imagery is what everybody wants. You know, social media, Instagram, Facebook, it's all about content and imagery, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's the ev- evolution of imagery, uh, I think, has been affected by the, the virus. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How how has social media um, impacted on on you in the fashion business? I know you're very, you know, uh, active on Instagram. I think you've got sixty something or other thousand followers, etc. Um, just just talk about the influence that that social media has had. I mean, Instagram is only ten years old, um, yeah. so it's been I mean, bang in the middle of your career. What sort of impact has that had? I mean, I, I remember laughing about it to my wife and going, "I'm never going to do that." My wife had an account way before me. I don't think I've yeah. probably had an account for seven years. And, you know, in the beginning, it was really fun. I really loved the idea that you would find an old photo, an old, you know, an old um, uh, record sleeve, or you'd find an old photograph or, you know, a picture from a magazine or, you know, an old Lartigue picture or whatever, whatever. And you'd post it and people would go, oh, my God. And it was quite reminiscent social media for me. And then it kind of picked up and it started to become more of a sort of, inspiration stream for people so i follow a lot of people that uh find um you know years ago you'd you'd look at books right and then google came along and now you have instagram and and so instagram is such a great source of inspiration and reference and for me it's become harder and harder to follow accounts that have rare imagery or rare you know iconic references that that you can't really find elsewhere um and for me, what's it done? For me, it's it's given me a platform, a really wonderful platform to sort of present the things that I love about what I do. It's given me a platform to sort of, I suppose, show off because that's what it is about. It's about kind of gloating a little bit and going, look what I've done. I think, I think it's amazing. I hope you guys think it's amazing too. Um, one thing that I've not quite got into is the whole kind of oversharing of social media where it's like, here's, here's a hairdo we did at, you know, Hyder Ackerman this season, this is how we did it. Because I think sometimes the mystery is what makes things beautiful. I think sometimes when you overshare too much, it kind of, as wonderful as oversharing is, because it's the learning tools for the trade. But I think mm. in fashion, there should be a little bit of mystery. You shouldn't know how Guido did some of those amazing looks because you don't need to know. What you need mm. to do is find that imagery and that, that, that hairdo that he created aspirational. Yeah, it's kind of the magical you know, way, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think you know, I think sometimes the social media oversharing element of things for me is 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 what what I don't love. So for me, I've tried to keep my page very simple and just purely about the the craft of imagery. Yeah. Okay. When you, um, I mean, I've known you for a long time, twenty years or something now, um, at least. And, and you were that you know that twenty year old when I met you, or maybe a little bit more. Um, when you now meet 20-year-olds, yeah. uh, young hairdressers, whether on yeah. your team or elsewhere, what do you see that's exciting? Because they come at the world with a different attitude, a different approach and different technology and stuff. Do you see anything that particularly makes you go, wow, that's, that's great, the way they see things, the way they think? 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, the sort of the fearlessness of them, the, the kind of the un, uninhibited kind of uh, drive, the kind of, you know, you look at, you, you know, and, and also the fact that they're willing to put themselves out there and give it a try. You know, me, 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 Tyler Johnston, who you and I are very close friends with and have known for years and who gave me an incredible opportunity at the very early beginning of my career, and I'll never be able to repay that debt to him, is someone that gave me a chance. And he took me slightly overexcited, talked too much, you know, didn't really know what I was doing. And he took me on board and said, come on, let's give it a try and we'll try and work. And, you know, he gave me that opportunity. And I do see myself, and I'm not going to say I see myself in every, in all these young kids, but there is every now and then some kid comes along and I'm like, do you know what? He's a bit annoying, but I'm going to give him a try because I was a bit annoying once. And, you know, Eugene gave me a try. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Eugene gave me a try. Tyler gave me a try. Mira gave yeah. me a try. And, yeah. and I think you need to be given opportunity in yeah. order to flourish and grow. And, you know, we're all young and we're all overexcited and we're all a little too eager and sometimes you just need someone to go mate hold on a second slow yourself down take a breath and I'm really happy that people did that for me so hopefully on my team with the way that we run it and the people that look after my team for me Lucas and those guys they do find those kids and give those kids those opportunities because it's the only way this industry continues sure yeah yeah okay um just to wrap up then how do you stay relevant how do you reinvent yourself i mean uh, i'd never say you're at the peak of your career but you're you know you've been in it a long time you're doing phenomenally well you're right up the top of the pile so to speak how do you stay relevant how do you how do you keep you know growing do you know what do you know what's really mad um lucas i keep talking about lucas trauma who is 10 years younger than me. He came to work for me. And as I said, he's, both his parents are hairdressers, salon hairdressers in Bavaria. And there's things that Lucas knows that Lucas does that I can't do. And I say, I'll say it to people on set. I'll say it to the team. I'm with. You know, he's, an, he's a phenomenal hairdresser. There's things he does better than me. And I've been doing hair 15 years longer than him. And that's what, for me, keeps me, I suppose, I would like to think keeps me relevant is that I'm constantly aware that there's more to learn. I've yeah. never, ever, I would never, and I don't think I ever will turn around and go, I know it all. There's nothing left for me to learn. I think there's yeah. always every day you walk into an environment and there is, you're put in a position where you've got to question yourself and you've got to push yourself yeah. and you've got to try that little bit harder to figure out the problem. Yeah. Um, and I think that hopefully, hopefully that drive is what keeps all of us relevant. Great answer. Great answer. Trying what, to what, progress. What, what do you, what do you wish you were better at? All of it, literally all of it, all of it, yeah. it every day. And, you know, I'm very happy. I'm very happy on the day. Some days I'm yeah. not always happy. I'm very happy on the day. But when the image comes out, you, you, I think if I didn't question it when I saw the image, I wouldn't be good at what I do. Because if I yeah. looked at every picture that was, if I looked at every picture on my Instagram and went, that's brilliant, that. Mm. I might as well give up. Otherwise, isn't you know? Otherwise, what have I got to kind of fight for and, and push for? Mm. You know, I, I think uh, everything. I, I could be better at everything. Mm. I could definitely be better at a round brush blow dry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're not the only one there, mate. Okay. Well, listen. Um, we we I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I know we chatted before we started recording. We're going to keep on chatting after we're recording. But I need to uh, start wrapping up. Whereabouts can people connect with you on Instagram or other social channels, Duffy? Um, I mean, I have uh, Instagram's the only thing I have. It's Duffy underscore Duffy. I haven't to be really honest. To, on Instagram, to be really honest, Anthony, since COVID started, I've kind of shut down my, not shut it down, but yeah, yeah. I've been quite absent on it just because yeah. I think respect, respectfully living in the city I'm living in or in the country I'm living in, yeah. I've tried to be as respectful of, of, of the, the, environment and, uh, the environment I'm in. Mm. Um, but social media, you know, Instagram is the thing that kind of is the lifeblood of, of, of our sure. industry at the moment. And so that is where, you know, you can find me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I will put that link in the show notes, Duffy underscore Duffy. Um, so um, if you are listening to this podcast with Duffy and have enjoyed it, then please do me a favor. Take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. Uh, so to wrap up, Duffy, thank you very much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. It took a while to get you, but it was definitely uh, worthwhile to sort of catch up with you and, and watch your 
have been doing. Uh, any final words for our audience today, Duffy? Um, well, no. What I'd like to say is I'd love to come back on and talk to you more. Maybe we can do it with one of my you know, fellow editorial hairdressers or even, you know, maybe we can get Angelo on or Eugene on or Anthony or Paul or one of the other guys and we can have a, you know, we can get three of us on here having a sort of a bigger conversation about more of what we what we can do and how we can continue to grow the industry. Yeah, what a great idea. It'll be very difficult though because just getting uh, a word in edgeways with you talking was hard enough. <laughs> no, no, definitely not at all, man. It, that, that, that would be great. Maybe we can make that happen. So awesome. thank you ever so much. Take care, look after yourself in this challenging world that we're in. And uh, I will look forward to having you on the Grow My Salon Business um, podcast again at a later date. So thanks, Duffy. Thanks, Neil. Lots of love, mate. Love to the family. Cheers, buddy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.